0: Last week, I presented a paper in Washington, D.C. at a conference sponsored by the Institute on Religion and Democracy, where I raised the question, does Paul eliminate particularity for Israel and the land in his portrayal of salvation available for all the world? The full version of the paper will be published by InterVarsity in 2016 in an edited volume. Today, I would like to share an abridged version of that paper with you. And my purpose in doing so is not so much to convince you of the thesis, which I'd imagine most of us here already agree with, but rather to equip you with a way of answering this question so that you can share with Christian friends what Paul teaches about God's faithfulness to Israel. The fact of the matter is that there is a growing trend in the evangelical world following on the coattails of mainline Protestant Christian denominations, maintaining that the church, the one new man, has replaced the Jewish people as the people of God. And so, in this way of thinking, the church has become the new spiritual Israel. And I think that each one of us here at Tikvot Israel, every single one of us here, needs to be able to demonstrate to our Christian friends why this is not the case. So, take good notes and view this as a training session. Let's blast off. And if I'm going too fast for you to fill in the worksheet that each of you should have, you can listen to the message online at tikvotisrael.com. In this teaching, which is entitled, Paul, Israel, and the Land, I will argue that Paul does not eliminate the particularity of the Jewish people or the land of Israel in his portrayal of the gospel, and that a compelling case can be made for particularity when we examine what Paul has to say concerning five areas. We can remember these areas by remembering the acronym GUCCI which stands for… Let me just say, uh, you know, this is going to be really… Ho- it's, this is helpful because it's such a massive topic, so when we're talking with Christian friends, it's easy to kind of just forget, well, what do I say first, or what can I share? It's just there are too many things to talk about. So, I think this acronym will be helpful to all of us. GUCCI, which stands for G, the Gifts of Israel. U, the uniqueness of Israel, C, the calling of Israel, second C, the confirmation of Israel's promises, and I, the irrevocability of Israel's election. I will comment briefly on each of these five areas and then conclude. Let's begin with G. G the gifts of Israel. Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, verses 3 through 5, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Messiah for the sake of my brothers, my kindred according to the flesh. They are the people of Israel, and to them belong the adoption as children, the glory, the covenants the giving of the Torah, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah. Here Paul states that the adoption as children, the covenants, the promises, and the Torah remain in the… what tense? present tense. In the Greek, it's in the present tense. This is very important. It's not in the past tense. It's in the present tense. These, all of these things, the, the, the being adopted as children, the covenants, the promises, the Torah, all these remain in the present tense, possessions of the Jewish people. Two chapters later, Paul continues this theme and writes in Romans 11, verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God to Israel are irrevocable. When Paul refers to Israel's gifts in this passage, he is likely pointing back to the list of national blessings that God gave to the Jewish people that we just read about in Romans chapter 9. Moreover, Paul's use of the term gifts in Romans chapter 11 is informed by Second Temple Jewish literature, where Israel is described as having been given national gifts, quote unquote, gifts from God. This is attested in Philo, Josephus, and Ezekiel the Tragedian at the end of the second century BCE. And some of these texts that talk about the gifts of God to Israel in Second Temple Jewish literature relate the term gifts to the land of Israel. Moreover, the term covenants and promises in Romans chapter 9 verse 4 and chapter 15 verse 8 cannot be understood apart from their land aspect because the origins of these covenants and the origins of these promises are coterminous with the oath that God made to the patriarchs concerning the land. See for example Exodus chapter 32 verse 13. This interconnection between covenant, promise, and land is echoed hundreds of times in Israel's Scriptures, something that would have been as clear to Paul as the stars in the sky. And this brings us to the U in our acronym, the uniqueness of Israel. The gifts of God to Israel made Israel unique. In his letters, Paul communicates this uniqueness or particularity in various ways. For example, first, he divides the world, including the body of Messiah, into two groups, Jews and Gentiles. Second, Jews are the circumcised, as distinct from the foreskin, as we see in Romans 3, verse 30, Romans 4, verse 9, and Romans 4, verse 12. Third, Jews are the natural branches, in contrast to the quote unquote wild olive shoots, unquote, as we read in Romans 11, verses 21 and 24. Fourth, in Paul's view, Jews are Israelites, quote unquote, in contrast to the nations, as we read in Romans 9, verse 4, and in Romans 10, verse 1, as well as Romans 11, verse 11, and verses 25 through 26. Fifth, The apostle writes that there is much, quote-unquote, advantage in being a Jew, as we read in Romans chapter 2, verse 25, and chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Sixth, Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, verse 28, that, quote, as far as election is concerned, they, the Jewish people, are loved by God on account of the patriarchs, unquote. This is why Paul refers to fellow members of the tribe as, quote, his, God's people in Romans 11 verse 1, or his inheritance as the marginalized reading of Romans 11 verse 1 puts it, thus emphasizing the land and the seed promises. Seventh, because of Israel's election, Paul… now let me just say this before I go on any further it's very difficult uh, reciting these scriptures as a Jew. Why? Because because these scriptures are emphasizing the blessings or the uniqueness or the certain gifts that God has given to Jewish people. It's easier for a non-Jewish person to say these things. And I say that because for those of us who are non-Jews here, I want to encourage you that you can do this better than I can, especially in speaking with Christian friends. Because when I say something like this, it sounds kind of self-serving. You're kind of raising up your own people in some way. But when a non-Jewish person shares these things, there's more credibility behind it. So I just want to encourage you, one, that I don't feel comfortable up here saying this. But two, Paul was a Jew, and he did say these things, so he obviously felt it was important to say this. And thirdly, that if you're non-Jewish, listen up, because you in particular can, say, can make these, these points much more powerfully than I or another Jewish believer in Yeshua can. So we're at, on the seventh point. point, seventh, because of Israel's election. Paul can say in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 that the Besorah, the gospel, is first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Unquote. Going first to the Jewish people was not primarily a matter of chronological order, ethnic loyalty, or wise outreach strategy. It was primarily because the Jewish people remain elect, and therefore God's children in a unique sense in the present tense as Paul states in Romans chapter 9 verse 4 that is why Paul can write in Romans chapter 2 verses 9 through 10 quote there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil first for the Jew then for the Gentile so let's get it clear whatever blessings and gifts and benefits Jewish people get they also get the trouble first. So, the point here is that God is fair. The trouble and the distress for every human being who does evil first comes to the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory… I like this part. And this is a better part. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. The Pauline principle here is To whom much is given, much is expected. Because the Jewish people are in a unique, filial relationship with God and have national gifts from God, including adoption as children, covenants, promises, and the Torah, we will be judged by a stricter standard than the Gentile world. It is important to remember that the kingdom of God is fundamentally a table fellowship of Jews and Gentiles, and that the beauty of this God-designed unity and the richness of this fellowship, which is supposed to be characterized by interdependence and mutual blessing, can only exist when Israel's uniqueness is upheld. For when Israel's uniqueness, when Israel's particularity is eliminated, then the kingdom of God becomes a table fellowship of Jews only or Gentiles only. And this brings us to the first C in our acronym, the calling of Israel. In Romans chapter 11, verse 29, Paul writes, quote, For the gifts and the calling of God to Israel, the calling of God to Israel are irrevocable what does Paul mean by the calling of God to Israel? Notably, Paul uses the same term for calling, klesis, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 20, where he refers to the calling, the quote-unquote calling of being circumcised. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 through 20 and verse 20, quote, This is my rule in all the congregations. Was anyone at the time of his call, that is, to salvation, already circumcised? In the calling in which he was called, in this let him remain, unquote. The notion of a Jewish calling, quote, unquote, a Jewish calling, and the responsibility of Jews to remain in their calling finds further support in Paul's command to Jewish people in first Corinthians seven, verse eighteen, where he says, "May epis pastho, literally, do not put on foreskin, metonymically, do not assimilate or gentilize yourself. Unquote. The language is a likely allusion to first Maccabees chapter one, verses eleven through fifteen, which is in the which is in the um, Apocrypha, where the expression, "removed the marks of circumcision, is, a, is linked to de-Judaization and the adoption of Gentile customs that collapse Jew-Gentile distinction. Why was Jewish assimilation so problematic for Paul? It is probably because Jewish particularity reflects Israel's divine calling. According to Exodus 19, the Lord elected Israel to be His treasured possession, His segulah out of all the peoples. The text goes on to state that Israel was called to be a, quote, kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a mamlechet kohanim vegoi kadosh. And we see this in Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, Deuteronomy 14, verse 2, and Deuteronomy 26, verse 18. Philo, a Jewish contemporary of Paul, considered Israel's Exodus 19 calling to be fundamental to the nation's identity. He compared Israel to a king's royal estate— and to a priest who ministered on behalf of a city. In other words, Philo viewed Israel as having a priestly calling to be different, and through that difference, to minister to the nations. In other words, the calling of Israel is not to minister to itself. The ultimate calling of Israel is for it to minister to the nations of the world. Against this Second Temple Jewish backdrop, we can understand Paul's command in 1 Corinthians 7.18, "May epis do not assimilate, as an imperatival instruction to Jewish people, including Jesus-believing Jews or Yeshua-believing Jews, to remain faithful to their Jewish identity. This was ultimately so that through their particularity, they might walk out Israel's priestly calling to be a light to the nations, even as Paul was walking out this, what he refers to as a priestly service, as he puts it in Romans 15 verse 16, through his apostolic ministry. And this brings us to the second C in our acronym. What is our acronym? Gucci. Okay, the second C in our acronym the confirmation of Israel's promises. In Romans 15, verse 8, Paul writes, For I tell you that the Messiah has become a servant of the circumcised on behalf of the truth of God, in order that he might confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Paul goes on to quote the Septuagint or Greek version of Isaiah 11, verse 10, to show how these promises to the patriarchs will come to ultimate fulfillment in the Messianic kingdom. Romans 15, verse 12 uh, 12 states, And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse shall come, the one who rises. To rule the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles shall hope. Notably, the context of this Isaiah passage includes fulfillment of the land promise. After the words, in him the Gentiles shall hope, unquote, Isaiah declares, and it shall be in that day that the Lord shall again show His hand, to be zealous for the remnant that is left of the people. And He shall lift up a standard for the nations, and He shall gather the lost ones of Israel, and He shall gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. That's the Septuagint version of Isaiah 11, verses 11 through 12. Here in Isaiah 11, the universal dimension of the messianic kingdom is balanced by the particularity of Israel's king, who is not just a generic human being, but he's the root of Jesse, that is, the son of David, and the return of his people to their land. Though Paul does not quote verses 11 through 12, we can reasonably assume that he was aware of the territorial context and that he intended what he did, quote, to serve as more of a bookmark than a standalone comment. There are other Pauline texts that weigh in on the apostles' view of the confirmation of Israel's promises. These include Romans chapter 11, verse 26, Romans chapter 9, verses 25 through 26, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in the full version of this paper, I unpack what Paul has to say in these passages. All of the eschatological drama described in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, centering on the death, the resurrection. And the bodily return of the Messiah takes place in Rome? In Rome? Is that where it takes place? In New York City? In Toledo? No? No, it all takes place in the land of Israel. And this brings us to the final letter, I, in our acronym, the irrevocability of Israel's election. Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, verse 29, that, quote, the gifts and the calling of God to Israel are, what does it say? Irrevocable, metameleta, in Greek. While in English translations, the word irrevocable usually appears at the end of the sentence, in the Greek text, a metamoleta appears at the beginning. Thus, placing emphasis on this word as though it was highlighted or had an exclamation mark attached to it. Paul's point is that Israel's general state of unbelief does not compromise its election, its gifts, or its calling. God remains faithful to Israel despite Israel's unfaithfulness. Paul makes the same point at the beginning of Romans 11, when he raises the rhetorical question, I ask then, has God rejected His people? Or, in the marginal reading, His inheritance, as he says in Romans 11, verse 1. Here, Paul does not go on to say, yes, God has rejected His people and transferred all of Israel's blessings to the church. On the contrary, he exclaims, me Let's all say me Genoita. Say it like oy gevolt. Me That's right. Oy Me That's right. Which means which means of course not. Absolutely not. Out of the question. By no means or I like the complete Jewish Bible uh, translation. Heaven forbid. <laughs> Paul could not have been more loud and clear in affirming the irrevocability of Israel's election. We might add that if God is not faithful to Israel, then there is no guarantee that He will be faithful to any of us. In conclusion, I have argued that Paul does not eliminate particularity for Israel and the land in his portrayal of salvation available for all the world, and that a compelling case can be made for particularity and God's continuing faithfulness to Israel when we review what God has to say about Gucci. The gifts of Israel, G, the gifts of Israel. The uniqueness of Israel, U. C, the calling of Israel. C, the confirmation of Israel's promises, and I, the irrevocability of Israel's election. So let us uh, remember that acronym when we're with Christian friends and we're trying to explain to them about God's faithfulness to Israel. Just remember Gucci. Paul does not undermine the particularity of the people or the land of Israel in his teachings. Rather, he affirms the continuing election, gifts, and calling of his people— and spends considerable time in his letter to the Romans, at least four chapters to get this point across. In Paul's view, particularity is part of the warp and woof of the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is manifest, as we have said, in a table fellowship of Jews and Gentiles, who remain faithful to their callings as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. Paul's Isianic vision of the world to come is best expressed in Romans 11 and Romans 15, where Israel and the nations are described as worshiping God together in unity and diversity, in interdependence and mutual blessing. Paul sums it all up beautifully in Romans chapter 15, verse 10, when he says, quoting the song of Moses, and let us all say it together, rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. Let's pray.